Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. So, first question for you out there. Who are you? The label that I use to identify myself most is Irish and Scottish. Older, working class, poor. And I consider myself a gun-owning capitalist hippie. I identify as working class. I'm an American Muslim woman. Puerto Rican. I'm a black man, plain and simple. I'm about as white as can be. A gay man. I consider myself to be pansexual. Liberal. Jewish. Broke. White. Environmentalist. Female. Buddhist. Liberal. Working class. Black. Democrat. And business owner. American. Crazy cat lady. Number one mom. The only label I actually use is artist. I'm an American. It don't matter what race I am or any of us are. In 100 years, I hope we all have just one label. Human. Ah, the United States of America. Land of the free, home of the brave, and lots and lots and lots of opinions on what it means to actually be an American. So, who am I? I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. I want to welcome you, our listeners, to this daily national conversation. I've spent my career reporting on issues that matter to Americans, everything from how technology shapes the way we communicate to racial injustice and economic inequality. And today, I come to you as the host of a show that we hope will represent different points of view from different parts of the country, not just New York. At some point today, this broadcast will be heard in places like Williston, North Dakota, and San Angelo, Texas, and Jackson, Mississippi. And while the things that matter to you, to your families, to your communities, in many ways may be different, there are also many commonalities. You see, it's all part of this 241-year-long experiment that we're part of called the United States of America. It's an experiment in democracy, an experiment in identity, and it's an experiment in what it means to be free in a place that you call home. Quick history check here. At the founding of this country, being an American, or at least one who had rights, essentially meant being a white guy who owned property. Today, though, that identity is shifting fast, from what we look like, to where we worship, to who we love. And so it's not surprising that for many Americans, those changes create a sense of anxiety. Some people feel they'll be left behind by the country they thought they knew, and others are excited to chart a new course, to take part in that dream that so many of us aspire to. And if you think this is all pie-in-the-sky talk, it's not. Americans really think about this stuff. 2017 data from the Pew Research Center found that 36% of American adults reported that their family had in fact already achieved the American dream. 46% said they were on their way to achieving it. Throughout the week, we'll spend some time examining the different facets of American identity, from who we think we are when we talk about the working class and the elite, to the way religion and politics influence our identities, And at the end of today's hour, I'll talk with President Jimmy Carter, who says his faith has defined most of his life. So stick around for that conversation. But to help us kick things off, I'm joined by three people with very different identities. We have Amy Walter, the national editor of the Cook Political Report, Sarah Smarsh, a Kansas-based journalist covering socioeconomic class and author of the forthcoming book Heartland, and Michael Eric Dyson from Georgetown University. His latest book is Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Great to have you all here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. All right, Amy, so I want to start with you. Is there such a thing as a collective American identity? I think that there is a collective sense for what that means when you say that I'm an American. But I think what has changed 
especially in the last, let's say, 20, 25 years, is that we're hearing voices from different Americans. So I think there was an image of what an American looks like, sounds like, acts like, that had been sort of put into our culture thanks to movies and, you know, popular music, et cetera. And as we have transformed as a society, especially as technology has helped to transform us, we're now seeing different Americans and their Americanness that looks different from the image that we once had. Michael? Yeah, I think that's uh, true. Look, there's been a huge and fractious division between those who want to see America as predominantly white and therefore an invisible identity. Many white people are not encouraged to think of themselves as white. So the problem right off the bat is that many white Americans don't conceive of themselves as one among many ethnicities, one among many identities. They see themselves as de-raced, that whiteness is a default position, therefore it's invisible, that their American identity is something that everybody should aspire to. So why don't you black people stop it? Why don't you brown people stop it? Red, yellow, all of these other rainbow colors, stop it. Just be American. Why hyphenate yourselves? The great philosopher Beyonce Knowles said recently that uh, it's been said that racism is so American that when we protest racism, some assume we are protesting America. So, yeah, uh, what's interesting here is that, you know, we have this notion of what it means to be an American and the world sees it in rather more simplistic terms sometimes than we do. Uh, and at the same time, from within, we've always known that there were cantankerous differences, uh, radically dissimilar identities that we were attempting to subsume under the rubric of America. And yet we want a right to define what that America is. Sarah, I'm curious to hear from you um, in response to Michael's comments about whiteness per se, because you are from a place that many would say that's white America, right? Yeah, and I think actually, so I'm from Kansas, which like many agricultural states and largely rural states is losing population overall. But the in Kansas, the Hispanic population in particular, as of the last census, had uh, grown by 60% in the past decade. So that shift in color, in culture, in all sorts of identity markers is is happening on the ground there. And Pretty infamously now, as the rifts that are revealed there have been exposed in kind of the, the wake of the 2016 election, rural America is overwhelmingly white. However, there are, um, let's say, Garden City, Kansas, uh, which is out in the western rural expanse of the state. It's a meatpacking town, and it's incredibly diverse. I believe it's a, a, a white minority place. Since the 70s, it's been diversifying with an immigrant, immigrant population, and that happens to be a town that has, you know, no doubt um, racism is and, and white supremacy is at work in, in the systems of that place, but the community has found a way to embrace its diversification in such a way that is one of the few counties that's actually gaining in population. And so they're kind of realizing not by any, you know, standard of moral character necessarily, but just the economic imperative of like, we're going to have to be cool with this or else this place is going to die. So is that right? Because I feel like the perception and the and the, the media reporting around that has been the opposite. It's been the quote unquote white working class really being threatened by mm -hmm 
brown workers or black workers. Yeah. I mean, my experience of growing up among the white working class and quote unquote under the poverty line, my dad's a construction worker. I grew up doing agricultural labor. I'm a fifth generation farmer. Something I always like to point out when when there is this like fixation on the quote unquote white working class in national media is white people at every income level voted for Donald Trump at the same rate. So what I like to say is whiteness elected Donald Trump, not poor whiteness. So just like we're talking about no place is a monolith, um, the white working class isn't either. Can I I go back to to raise an idea? uh, We keep talking about America as an aspiration and an idea. And I think that's what we saw in the 2016 campaign. But quite frankly, it's been clashing up against these two ideas have been clashing up against each other for quite some time. And that's this idea of, you know, the American dream and the American aspiration. And this is we aren't a thing. We're an idea. And the clash now is between what we had, right? This is what America was. America was great when versus the traditional America aspiration. We still can be this, right? Wherever, Whenever we have a tipping point like we're in right now, and it's not just socially and culturally, but how technology has changed our lives, how the economy has changed. It feels like every 15 minutes, there's some big disruption to our lives. The desire to go back to what we had versus, oh, no, things are going to be better over on the other side. And of course, if you are in the group that things were good for you 50 years ago versus things weren't that great for you if you were alive 50 years ago, Um, you're going to have a very different concept when you ask the question about what it means to be American and what it means to have the American dream. And I wonder if y'all can sort of address this issue too. The American dream is, I think, in many ways being unmasked as a sort of myth. Um, It's one of the narratives that we as Americans have been fed, work really hard, quote unquote, this is a meritocracy, you'll get where you want to get, you know, you can get the house, the picket fence, etc. And I think at least the last decade or two have shown us that that is not um, necessarily true. And it's increasingly difficult for people to even think about getting into this middle class house with the white picket fence. And I think there is a certain amount of disillusionment, if you will, among Americans about that. I do. We do have some research, however. And in 2016, Pew Research Center data found that the American public described certain characteristics um, and they rated them in terms of their importance of what it means to be, quote unquote, truly American. Does anyone have any ideas before I tell you what the first couple were? Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that, that one of their answers was shaped by capitalism, mm, maybe. Employed. <laughs> yeah, right. Employed oh. helps. Michael, any ideas? Yeah, uh, maybe employment, maybe where you live, you know, rural mm-hmm. versus uh, urban, or, you know, what you feel about uh, how did you vote in the last election, whether you're Democrat or Republican? I don't know. I mean. Well, I'll tell you, things. the one that was ranked with the highest importance was being able to speak English. Mm. Oh, yeah, right. The second highest was sharing American customs and traditions. Third was being born in the United States. And fourth was being a Christian. Wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I think people of color have always understood that the American dream was a fantasy and an ideal. Poor and working class white people have often understood that as well. And I think we have to pay attention to the fact that none of, none of these groups are homogenous. There are, you know, deeply religiously conservative black people and brown people who adhere to their religion, who believe in America, uh, apple pie and the flag. 
And the irony is that many Republicans on the far right don't understand what a rich, a vote rich and morals rich community they have in both black and brown, among many others communities. If they would just knock off some of the racist approaches through the politics and public policy, they could exploit an enormously fertile vein of moral and religious conservatism that almost happens, quote, naturally uh, in these communities. And I'll end by saying this. So when we talk about the white working class, I think the the admonition to see that they are not homogenous is ex- extremely important here because uh, the white working class has been used as a poster boy for good stuff and a whipping boy for bad stuff from the very beginning. Race and class become intertwined so that the racism of the white working class, the homophobia of the black and brown working class, And some of the tensions, the sexism of all of them means that these are complicated communities. But when we come down to trying to figure out, oh, who's a good guy and who's a bad guy, it's really more complicated than us versus them. Guys, I want to make sure we get to some calls from listeners that really stood out to us over the last week. Take a listen to this. Hey, this is Charles in Louisville, Kentucky. If I identify as white, I'm a racist. If I identify as male, I'm a sexist. If I identify as Christian, I'm a bigot. So I identify as working class because it's not okay to hate the working class, at least not yet. Amy, your reaction? Yeah, I think he represents this idea that I was talking about earlier, which was it was pretty clear 50 years ago when you were any one of those categories what that meant. And now as we are having more of these voices into the mix, voices that are challenging what it means to be all of those things, I am not surprised to hear that there is a bitterness and and a wariness and also a feeling that the ground is shifting constantly beneath me. We hear this a lot with the Me Too movement. At the same time, I think what we are recognizing is that this is going to be messy. The more that we involve different points of view in different people, It's going to challenge all of us to reassess what it means to be whoever it is you are. And voila, here we are, 2018. Right. I think that's that's an extremely valuable uh, insight there. The problem is the caller ain't mad at the structures, though, right? He's not mad at the fact that, hey, there's an inequitable distribution of resources, influence, wealth, uh, opportunity. Ultimately, I think what's interesting here is that many people who have who have been forced to play fair in the sandlot of life don't want to share their toys that, yes, this has thrown everybody off. The Me Too movement has thrown everybody off. Uh, the desire for racial and political justice has thrown people off. But being thrown off, then that's the predicate for at least changing uh, society in a fundamental fashion. And, and it is messy. Democracy is messy. Fascism is always neater. Democracy is far more complicated and because it allows whosoever will to get into the fray. And I think that's the beauty. That's the beautiful mess of American democracy. Yeah. To to Michael's point about kind of the irony of the caller's comment, um, I actually disagree with him that it's that it's still not okay to hate the working class. I mean, I I think that of all colors, this this is a uh, a country that is just venomous toward people who have not quote unquote pulled themselves up and succeeded in you know a capitalist framework. I want to go to another call if we could and take a listen. Hi, this is Savita from Greenville, South Carolina. As a non-white, non-Christian, able-bodied, educated woman. Multiplicity and intersectionality have shaped my identity. 
I am many things, some self-described and others described by others. My identities overlap and can be deployed differently. When someone calls me American, I add that I'm also Indian, for example. I am both privileged and also an object of discrimination. Amy, your thoughts on that? I do think that is representative. It could be of all callers, right? How do you identify versus how does somebody identify you? When you walk into a room, what's the first thing people think of you? Do they look at your shoes and they think, that person doesn't really have a lot of money? Do they look at the color of your skin? Do they look at how well you're dressed? All of those things are happening to you constantly. And it is this feeling we have. Again, this is the beauty of America, which is this thing of I'm going to identify myself. Nobody can do it for me, right? And yet we know That's not how it works. You are going to be put into those different buckets. I think the bigger challenge we have right now is that it's easier to caricature someone than it is to understand them. But it ain't equal, is it? Isn't it? That's right. Right. We don't don't, don't don't stop to to want to understand black people, right? The the point you're making now so brilliantly, we, we say, well, wait a minute. It's easier to caricature than to understand. Where was that when we needed that? That's right. I think that to go back to that call, the one solution that we can turn toward is pushing ourselves as a society to hold simultaneous truths. So I grew up pulling rye out of wheat fields with my hands in an almost entirely white place where I perceived myself to be at the bottom of a pecking order because it, it was a place where whiteness was not only the illusion of some sort of American default, but it was also physically what I saw when I looked around. And it, it felt to me like that um, I didn't have much economic privilege. I then, you know, as I move through the course of my life and understand the ways that whiteness has benefited me, it turns out that I cite, I, yes, you can have racial privilege and uh, be economically disenfranchised to some extent simultaneously. And of course, these kind of simultaneous truths are realities for every individual American in different ways. And I think that our media narratives tend to, you know, we color states red and blue. The brain's impulse to categorize in in succinct ways says this person is this and this person is that. It is more complex than that. And I think the the only way forward is to find that humanity, not just to Michael's point, as as some sort of empathy for um, the white working class, but for everyone. Sarah Smarsh is a Kansas-based journalist covering socioeconomic class and author of the forthcoming book Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Eric Dyson is a professor of sociology at Georgetown University and author of Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Thanks, Michael. No, I'm uh, grateful very much for this conversation. Thank all of you uh, for, for participating and thanks for inviting me. And Amy Walter is national editor of the Cook Political Report. But, Amy, we have some big news, don't we? (laughs) We do. Tell us a little bit about what's coming, what we can expect. Well, I'm very excited about this. Tanzina, this is not the only time we get to be on air. That's right. Now, not always at the same time. That's right. But (laughs) starting June 1st, every Friday, I will be hosting The Takeaway. And in it, we're going to try to do exactly what this conversation was getting to, which is dig deep into some of the political and policy issues that are impacting all of us. I feel like we're at a time now with incredible disruption all around us every minute. Our phones are buzzing constantly with breaking news alerts. We have more information than ever, but we don't always feel very informed. 
We don't. So this sadly. is the opportunity to really <laughs> try to get an understanding of what this issue is. How did we get here? Where do we go from here? Bring really smart, insightful people to you, the listener. This is fantastic. And I know if you enjoyed this conversation, this roundtable, and you loved hearing from Amy, well, you're going to be able to hear from her every Friday coming up, starting June 1st, talking about politics here on The Takeaway. And we're so excited to have this collaboration with you, Amy. I cannot wait to get started and so happy for you to be starting and getting this journey on the road. Let's do this. Let's do it. Thank you.